are heading out, I'm going to ask each and every one of you to grab your Bibles as well as your digital devices if you have that instead and go to Luke chapter 15 today. Luke chapter 15. As you're going there, I'm going to let you know if you were here last week, it's going to be unlike last week where today we're only going to cover one parable and last week we actually covered eight. So we're just going to cover one today in Luke chapter 15. But if you open to Luke chapter 15, you have at least three to choose from. You have three parables to choose from because if you go in there, you're going to see the title that says the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or lost sons, or even what we commonly call it the prodigal son. And so as we are there, what we're going to do is today we're only going to be focusing on one, and that one is the last one. I bet you could have guessed that by listening to the songs that we even sang up ahead of time. The run to the father, the prodigal son, the one who was wayward. As I thought about this week, a question came to my mind. A question came to my mind because I want to know what you think the word prodigal means. Because as I looked at the passage this week, and I've seen this passage a hundred times, I may have preached on this passage a hundred times, but as I looked at the passage and saw the word prodigal, what is the definition that comes to your mind when you hear the word prodigal? Is it wayward? Is it lost? Is it rebellious? What word comes to your mind when you think of that? See, I thought initially that the prodigal is someone who leaves home and really loses themselves in a spree of living the high life. Kind of like all-in Vegas-style living. That is the prodigal. Going against everything they've been taught, everything they grew up to know, and they go all-in against all of that. But then I looked up the word prodigal and looked at the definition. Check out what it says. Adjective. Wastefully or recklessly extravagant. Giving or yielding profusely. Very generous generous and lavish, lavishly abundant, giving in large amounts, or a person who is wasteful of his or her money, possessions, etc. When you think of the prodigal son, does that definition fit? When we think of the word prodigal, or why we call him the prodigal son, does that definition fit? And I began to think about that, and I kind of went back to what we talked about last week when it came to what a parable is. If you were with us last week, we were talking about the parables of the kingdom of heaven, and we said, really, there's some things that we have to do in order to see and understand a parable. First, know what a parable is. It is a simile. It is using the word like or as that has a, a practical truth, a spiritual truth attached to it, and to understand it, we had to ask ourselves three things, or at least see from three things. Number one was, listen from the hearer's perspective. Put yourself in the audience's shoes. Number two was look for the main point, and number three was make sure to let the truth change your perception instead of your perception change the truth. And as we see these parables dump out, I want us to even look today with those same things. So today what I want to do first is I want to hear from the parable or from the, the audience's perspective. I want to see the audience that Jesus is teaching to. And the great thing about Luke chapter 15 is, is he tells us right up front who he's talking to. 
He tells us right up front who he's talking to. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says these words. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomed sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. We have our audience right here. And as he's pointing out to the audience, he says, here's a parable. A parable about a lost sheep. Here's a parable. A parable about a lost coin. And then immediately following is the parable we're going to look at today. And really it fits nice into the sequence to think it says lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And that fits real nice. But as we dive in today, we're going to see that it's much bigger than just a lost son. So as we dive in, what I want you to do is, again, I want you to see the audience that he's addressing in this story. Who are the four groups of people that we saw there? Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. And really, in all honesty, the tax collectors and sinners were just gathered around. They get to be the side people that get to hear part of the story. He was pointing these specific stories at the Pharisees and the scribes. He was pointing these specific uh, uh, parables to the Pharisees and the scribes. So as he's doing it, I think we have to understand who they are. And most of us probably do, but I'm just going to give you a real quick refresher course. As we look at the Pharisees and scribes, they were the, re the representatives of the religious establishment. They, they were the ones that interpreted the Jewish law, and they actually had the responsibility of making judgments about what is right and what is wrong when it came to human behavior. And so we see these definers. We see these guardians of the law hanging around and listening and watching Jesus. They're not happy about what they see, though. Why are they not happy about what they see? Well, they're surrounded, or Jesus has surrounded himself with tax collectors and sinners. I've talked about this before, which I've always thought it was funny that these are two separate categories, but it was better to be a sinner than it was to be a tax collector. At least in most people's minds, tax collectors didn't have a chance. Sinners at least had some sort of chance. So the religious leaders, they're standing around, they're watching all this take place, and in their minds, there really is two different groups of people. There is the spiritually righteous, the, the ones who are elite, and then you had the unclean. And they tried to live their lives as best as possible to avoid anything and anyone who is unclean. So Jesus gathering around, or being, having all these people gather around him, was driving them nuts. As a matter of fact, they take offense and they begin to grumble, as it says in that passage. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Who is this guy? And so in the middle of all of this, he begins to think, Jesus goes, you know what? I know these people. I know the sinners, I know the tax collectors, I know the Pharisees, I know the scribes. I know these religious elites, and I know what they're thinking. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to challenge their thinking about God, and I'm going to tell them a story. As a matter of fact, he's going to tell them three stories. So he starts off with the lost sheep, talking about a shepherd, and the 99, and leaving those 99 to go after that one lost sheep. You know what, everybody sitting around there, that audience, remember we have to take it from the audience's perspective, they knew the sheep and shepherd analogy. They understood that, and, and they knew that if a shepherd did not go after a sheep, that sheep would be hopelessly lost forever. 
It wouldn't just wander back to the fold. It had to be chased down. And here's the thing. Rabbis at the time had taught, and even sometimes still do, some of our teachers do, that in order to come to God, you have to come to him in the right way. It was completely unheard of that God would pursue somebody who was lost. That it was our job to come to him in the right manner. So Jesus is dropping a whole new truth in all of this. Then he shifts from that, from losing a sheep to losing a very important coin. If you read some commentaries, they say it was actually a coin that was worn on a necklace that would signify like a wedding ring, that, that she was married. So that's how important this coin really was. And she shines a light into the darkness. And that's a whole other thing we can get into another time. She shines a light into the darkness. She finds this coin and then she celebrates that this coin has been found. Another truth that Jesus is dropping here that is unheard of is that there is a celebration that happens when the lost becomes found. See, the celebration for many Jewish rabbis at that point in time was that Jesus, or not Jesus, because obviously he wasn't, uh, he wasn't who they thought that he was kind of thing. God would actually celebrate at the obliteration of sinners. That was the teaching. That was the thinking. So the fact that he would celebrate a lost being found was again unheard of. And you have to think that audience, especially the tax collectors and sinners, they're leaning in. They're hearing, this is amazing. They're, they're hearing all the things that are there and that leads us really to our third parable. And our third parable is found starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. You all know the story. I, I I, I know that you've heard it a time or two. If you've been in church your whole life, you, you've probably heard it a thousand times. It started way back when you were kids. All of our kids are hearing it today. As a matter of fact, they get to eat cake today for celebration. Sorry, guys, you don't get that. But they get to eat cake today and all of that. And here, as we're hearing it, I, I'll be honest. I was very tempted, very tempted to go, you know what, we need to contemporize this story. We need to jazz it up a little bit. I need people to really get it. I need people to hear it in, in a fresh new way. And I started thinking, you know what? The, the younger brother, he, he takes the money from dad. He goes down to the Audi dealership. He buys himself an R8. He, he gets an I-40. He heads west and he gets to Las Vegas where he lives the high life until he loses everything. He loses his car and he ends up working in horse stalls at Circus Circus, you know, just trying to make an extra buck. That was my thinking in it all. That we, we should take it in that way and, and really run with it so, so we could grasp it. But here's the thing. I think that jazzing up a story like this causes us to miss the main point. Remember I said the second thing is we have to focus on the main point. And a lot of people think that the main point is a lost son. Or some people even think the, la the, the main point is the lost sons, both brothers. But it's not. The main point in all of this is the father. The Father is the main point. If we miss God the Father in this story, we miss the whole reason why Jesus told the story to begin with. And so we have to look at that. So what I want to do is I want to keep this story in the simple form that Luke dropped it in to begin with. As a matter of fact, I don't have to jazz it up. Charles Dickens actually said this is the greatest short story ever written. So if Charles Dickens says it, I don't, need to, I don't need to jazz it up. We can just take it for what it is. So if you have your Bibles open, let's start reading. In verse 11, it says, He also said, a man had two sons. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I, I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. See, we take this pretty lightly when we read this because once again, we've heard the story so many times it becomes common. But the son is basically saying here, Dad, let's act like you're dead. Okay, let's pretend that you're dead. I don't need you. I don't care about you. Give me what's mine. And for whatever reason, the father does. It doesn't go into a whole lot of detail there, but for whatever reason, the father does. I just imagine the audience here and, and the shock that is on their face to think this is what's happening, that the father would do this, that the son would even ask to begin with. This is this in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country, which by the way, that distant country as I was studying this week, was out of bounds. The Jews didn't travel to distant countries. It was out of bounds and, and off limits and unclean to go into other places, which I thought was put a whole new light on Matthew 28, 19, and 20 when he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And in Acts 1, 8, when he says, and you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Ju Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That, that puts a whole new light on that, that these Jews and their teaching. So again, shock, awe, what do you mean he went to a distant country? And when he was there, he squandered his estate in foolish living. Depending upon the translation you have, says he spent his inheritance or squandered his estate on wild living, riotous living, loose living, or even reckless living. But all of them really boil down to this one thing, and that is this. They were living, or he was living, without saving anything. We still see that today, don't we? But here's the problem. Just like the old proverb says, a fool and his money, they were soon parted. They were soon parted, and he ended up working for a pig farmer. And we hear that, and we think to ourselves, you know what? That sounds like cruddy manual labor making minimum wage. That, that's kind of what it sounds like. But remember again the audience. And as we remember the audience, the Jewish religious leaders listening to Jesus, to them, feeding swine was the lowest thing you could possibly do. It was the lowest thing. Pork was a forbidden meat. Pigs were regarded as ritually unclean animals. So this boy had found himself in a very negative situation that really honestly gets worse if you read into verse 16. It says, he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. I mean, this story has reached rock bottom, utter depths. But then the beginning of the change comes because it says this in verse 17. It says, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. And one of the things I would love to know is how. It's not explained in there, but that's a question that I said. I said, well, how did he come to his senses? Did something just click? Did somebody walk by and say something? Did God speak to him in a certain way? How did he come to his senses? Doesn't matter really too, too much. The thing is, is he comes back to his senses and he thinks back to home and how his servants or his father's servants have it better than he does where he's at. So he decides to go home. And on his way home, he decides to come up with a speech. A speech that I'm going to give dad. I'm going to come and be repentant towards dad. And this is what the speech says in verse 18. It says, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. Now what he didn't know, of course, was that dad had been waiting for him. That every day he'd been going down to the end of the road, looking out on the horizon, hoping against hope that his son would be there. And then one day 
it happens. One day it happens, and there he was. And I love the description that's next. It says, filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. And we're going to see that in itself is another thing that would shock the audience that Jesus is talking to. Filled with the, the passion, the father went sprinting down the road to this boy. And I say boy, he was a young man. But sprinting down the road to this boy, and again, the audience, they, they wouldn't disagree with this or wouldn't agree with this either. They'd be in complete disagreement. A man Jewish man of proper respect did not hike up his skirt and go running down the road, okay? Well, maybe not skirt, but you know what I mean, the, the, the long rope. You get the picture that I'm talking about. That, that's not the response. A wayward son would need to beg and plead. A, a father would not be filled with compassion. So this is all new to all of them. But the thing is, is it's not just the religious leaders that would think that way. Don't, wouldn't we kind of think this way too? Have you ever lost a child? Camden was lost a lot. He took after his father. I was lost a lot. And I remember when I got lost, it was always the same thing. It was, I'm glad I found you, but now I'm going to kill you. Okay, and, and that, was, that was kind of the response that was there. It, uh, relief and anger all at the same time. Not compassion. It's not there. And we see this whole different thing. And the next thing we see is even crazier. He grabs him. He grabs him, and he's, his son is, is covered in, in ragged clothes that have pig slop all over them. And not pig mud, but pig slop and all the things that go with it. And this, this boy is unclean physically and ritually and spiritually. But this father grabs him. He pulls him tight. He hugs him. He kisses him. And he loved on his boy. It wasn't acceptable. But he did it anyway. So soon, the son, he, he starts that rehearsed speech. I'm sure he had plenty of time to practice it as he walked. He talks about how he sinned against heaven. He wasn't worthy to be called a son. Once again, we call this repentance. And the response of the father, the response of the father, we start to yell at the servants. Not in a negative way, excited. Pick up in verse 22. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring out the fatted calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Again, this compassion thing. This whole response of the father. Unheard of. Unheard of to celebrate this wayward son in this way. And we have to see from the perspective that these items that he brings out have major significance in this culture. And here it is, the robe. It stands for honor. The ring, it stands for authority. The shoes, they stand for being opposed to being a slave. Because the robe is the answer to I have sinned. I have sinned. And he says, you know what? No, you're a part of my family the ring is the answer i am no longer worthy to be called the son see when we put the ring on the finger it's like basically giving the power of attorney of the family to this guy to the son who just had a whole bunch of stuff and wasted it would you be trusting and worthy to give that to him probably not but this father says it's all yours the family is yours the sandals make me like one of the hired workers well hired workers didn't wear shoes sandals separated you 
from that way. Say, this is not you. And then the fatted calf, huge deal. That was saved for the big celebration. So the son coming back was a big celebration. See, this would be a great ending to a great story. If we stop right here, the sinners and the tax collectors say, so you're saying there's a chance. I, there, there's an excitement that is there saying that I am lost, but there's a possibility of being found. The welcome home party makes a great ending to a heartwarming story and all the things that go with it. The father's love for the wayward child. And maybe, just maybe, the Pharisees and the scribes, they would see God differently. They would see people differently. They would see the fact that God feels the same way towards all of his children, even the dirty ones. Even the unclean ones, even the ones that have sinned against him, looking for them, yearning for them, greeting them with an outpouring love that would actually literally make their head spin. It's a story of amazing grace. It'd be great to just wrap up right here, Jesus. You don't have to say anything else, but guess what? He keeps going. And as he keeps going, he begins to needle and prod maybe that Pharisee scribe group just a little bit more. He says this in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. The older son. The older son. Remember at the beginning of the story, it said the man had two sons. We get so focused on the one son, we forget about the other one. It's so easy for us to do that. You would assume this this other son would just be surprised and excited that that his brother had come home. And man, we're going to have a party for him? Awesome. Let's throw back the rug. Let, let's put on the music. Let, let's dance. Let's put on the sparkling cider and, and, and have a great celebration and pass me a plate of that roast beef. God is good. My brother is home. That should be the response, right? That should be where we come from, right? But is that how we would respond if we knew that somebody in our family, that we knew somebody that had wandered away gets this big celebration is that how we would respond no i think we probably respond more like this other brother actually does when he gets angry as verse 28 says and he pouts as verse 28 says and and maybe you'd want to talk to the father about the response here dad you are the one that needs to come to your senses because the way you're responding to this isn't okay it's completely not appropriate for the way that culture should deem it being appropriate and the older son he sits out he pouts he refuses going to the party and the father comes outside to, to find out why and i don't know how this whole story goes down i don't know the disrespect or respect that this older son has for his father but my guess is he gives his dad an earful and this is what he says in verse 29 look i've been slaving for many years for you and you've ne- and i've never disobeyed your orders Yet you've never given me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came home, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. A little self-righteous indignation there, right? I'm good. I'm really good. My brother, not so much. I mean, he has a pretty good case. It just doesn't even come close to seeming fair. All this fuss, all of this celebration over the one who wasted half of your estate. And not just wasted half of your estate. I love how the older brother lets his imagination run just a little bit. Because he says, what to dad? 
He says, he devoured your assets with prostitutes. Whoa, hang on just a second. At what point in time in the story were prostitutes ever mentioned? No, we, we like to embellish things a little bit sometimes, don't we? To really plead our case, to really dig it in there and say, look how good I am and look how bad they are. And so we see this, and, and then the thing I think we see that is worst of all in all of it is that we notice the older son doesn't feel loved by the father. He doesn't feel loved by the fire, father, but the reality is, is verse 31, the father says, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Of course the father loves him. He's always loved him. He, he always will love him. The problem is the older brother never noticed because he was too busy trying to earn love than understand that he already is loved. He was too busy trying to get recognition instead of just understand that he already is recognized as the son. All these things that he was mad about, they were already his. He just never asked because he was too busy to try to religiously earn it. He missed it. And the sad part is, is that this story, if you continue reading, is left open-ended. We don't know how the brother actually responds. We don't know how the brother actually responds. If he got past that self-righteousness and realized that it's not about him, that the main point of all of this is about the father, and that he just needs to repent from actually trying to earn it and understand it's already been given to him. Like his younger brother, he'd missed it. The younger brother went away to a distant land, but... The older brother's heart was just as distant from the father as the younger brother's was, just not physically, but spiritually far away. See, the younger son rebelled. We see that. We understand that he knew what he wanted. His desires led him to go really all in in this rebellion, to to go against God and, and all the things that God had said don't go to, or the father in this case. He loved sin. The promised satisfaction fed that appetite. He, he, he loved sin. He, he, he wanted it. It was lured, or he was lured, by, by the promises of it. Say, th- this is what you're going to get. This is how your life is going to be better. These are the things. The fascination, it hypnotized him. He had a fling. He rebelled against his father. In the process of rebelling against his father, he shows, I don't need you, dad. I, I don't need you in my life. I want to live independently of you. I don't need your provision. I don't need your restrictions. I don't need your chains in my life. I don't need these things. I know what is best for my life. Dad, you do not know. Anybody ever said that before? To God or your dad or heard it as a dad or a mom? There's that rebellion, the wall that gets built up that I'm going to push them away and you say, you know what, I'm out of here. And the son's journey takes him to that distant country, out of bounds, and we see the results. And the results, I think, are things that we need to hold on to today. The first result is this. The distant land is a land of poverty. The distant land is a land of poverty. It costs us everything. It costs us fellowship with the Father. It costs us freedom. The one thing that son wanted was freedom, but where did he end up? As a slave to a pig farmer. The lowest of low. We think it's going to do something for us, and it does the exact opposite. It's a land of poverty, but it's also a land of deception. That's why it says he came to his senses. He came to his senses. Sin distorts reality and truth. We know that. We know that. How often have we tried to justify a sin in our life 
to say that it fits into what God is trying to do, we take a scripture and we twist it to make it fit us instead of us taking our lives to fit that scripture. We do it, we see it, we've experienced it, because sin is deceptive. And that land, that, that, that land that is far from God is deceptive and we don't see clearly. The son, his pleasures were temporary. His pleasures were temporary. He lost everything. And it tells us that the, the, the temporary things of this world, they, they just don't satisfy. They, they don't take care of us. And there's a severe famine in the land that, that made the situation even worse. And then he found himself in this demeaning job, feeding pigs, and no one gave him anything. And to go back to my Las Vegas story. To, to go there, he was starving because he'd fallen so low and he'd become so insignificant. It's like sitting at the high rollers table and then the next day you're sitting out with the bums because you've lost everything. That's where we find this kid at. But then he comes to his senses and he realized he was wrong and that true freedom is actually found in the Father, not apart from him. He realized that the, this, this void in his life couldn't be filled by stuff. There, there's an older song, and it keeps getting older, obviously, uh, that it was in Bruce Almighty. I mentioned that movie a couple weeks ago, but it was by Plum, and it's called There's a God-Shaped Hole in All of Us. And that's the truth. We can't fit anything else into that God-shaped hole. We'll try, and we'll try, and we'll try, but just like a puzzle piece, only one's going to fit, and that is God himself. And that, that is the hole that we need. And he, this son realized a life independent of the father is actually a life independent and separated from his love, his fellowship, and even his authority, his structure. We need that structure in our lives because otherwise we're that wayward sheep going back to the first parable that he talked about. But the older son, he was a different kind of prodigal in himself. While the younger son went away to a distant land to waste his inheritance, the older brother had a distant heart that wasted everything that God or that Father had given him. He was determined in his life to outshine his brother's selfish rejection and, and look better in his father's eyes and begin to build his case of approval by working for his father year after year after year to, to work and to earn it. And the older son is even out working when the younger son returns. He's out trying to earn his keep he's trying to pile up his accomplishments to say look how much better i am than my brother we see that we see that but the problem is the older son has spent his entire life trying to earn the father's love and in the process he sees that his father's love is given away freely and he gets upset about it why well, i've been working all this time why have i been doing all of these things and the older son like i said is the other prodigal in the story where the younger son fled publicly, the older son fled privately. He may have stayed with his father, but his heart was far from him. His heart was far from him. And I'll say the same thing about a distant heart as I did about the distant land. The distant heart is a heart of poverty. To have that heart that is far from God, it will cost us everything. It costs us fellowship with the father, and it costs us freedom. That older brother was a slave to working and, and trying to earn it. We can have that same thing if we're just trying to be religious instead of having a relationship it's also a heart of deception we honestly don't know if this brother comes to his senses i'm hoping he does the story leaves it open for him to do such but that sin in our life where we try and earn god's love like somehow that that we can be good enough to get god to like us it distorts as well 
It twists the truth as well. And you know I'm right there too because we've also experienced this, haven't we? We don't see clearly and we try and think that we have earned or can't earn God's love. The Father. He's now fresh from from receiving the Son back. The, the, The party's going on. The family's throwing them all kinds of stuff. There's dancing, there's celebration. And he goes out to try and reach that distant heart of the older son, right? He goes out there and he, he has this soft correction, I'm sure. Because it seems like this father being filled with compassion for the one would be filled with compassion for the other. He says, you've always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. Will that shift the older brother's perspective? Don't know. One thing I see here is that both of these sons, they are great pictures of the sinful man. They're great pictures of the sinful man. As a matter of fact, if you were with us a couple of years ago when we went through the seven deadly sins, the seven deadly sins are actually on display in these two brothers. And in them, you'll see that that four are mind and spirit, and then three are all about the flesh. The younger brother, sins of the flesh. Sins of the flesh, lust, gluttony, and sloth. And those ones overwhelmed the younger brother to a point where, where he was so far out of it that he had to come to his sentences. But the sins of the spirit, the sins of the mind were the ones the older brother had. You have your pride, your greed, your envy, and your anger. And those things took, took that older brother captive. And we begin to see that and we can see it in our own lives and say, man, where am I at? I can find myself in these stories. Am I the older brother? Am I the younger brother? Have I been both? Am I in a distant land? Do I have a distant heart? Do I struggle with pride and greed and envy and anger? Do I struggle with with lust and gluttony and sloth? Are those the things? Where do I find myself in the story? And then this story all of a sudden all becomes about me. But I already told you up front what the main point is. It's not about the brothers and it's not about us. It is about the Father. It is about the Father. He is the main point. The unveiling of the heart of God. The unveiling of the heart of the Father. The central truth of this parable is a picture of the heavenly heart of God towards the undeserving sinners like me. That is where we find ourselves in this story. The Father's reaction throughout the story point towards characteristics of God that I think we need to hold on to. First, he was filled with compassion. He has compassion for the lost. He has compassion for those who have wandered. So should we. So should we. He ordered the service to put the best robe on his son. He said, take off the filthy rags that are covered in all of the nasty pig stuff and put on a robe on him. Just like Isaiah says, put on that robe of righteousness. He ordered the servants to put a ring on his son's finger, which is the, the acceptance of that family. God treats people who return to him as part of the family, not just some servant that have to try and earn their way back in. He ordered the servants to put sandals on the feet. I told you only free men got to wear sandals. There is freedom that is found in those who come to Christ. He ordered the servants to kill the fatted calf in order to save us. This story tells us God will not spare anything, not even his one and only son so that we can be found and be celebrated. He celebrated his son's return, and he encourages his other son that you don't have to earn his love. This is God. This is God. He who is known as Jehovah, 
the great I am. He who is known as Adonai, Master and Lord. He who is known as Elohim, the strength and power, El Shaddai, God Almighty, Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. This is God, the Almighty One. He is also known as Father. Is that amazing to anybody else? The creator of the universe is also Father. Got a little goosebumps just now. Just thinking about that. In all of it, Jesus actually mentions the name Father 12 times in these 22 short verses. If we miss God the Father here, we miss the point of the parable. He is the one consistent thing in this entire parable, the Father. He is the focus of the turning points. Some people say, well, it's when the, the son came to his senses. No, that's not the turning point. That's the beginning of the turning point. You know where the turning point is? When the father embraces him. When the father goes to him and embraces him. And the younger son is when the father goes to the other son and he says, all I have is yours. You've always been with me. The father is going to them, going back to the sheep, going back to the coin. His, his response in the midst of all of it as he extends grace and he extends mercy, he's doing it extravagantly. He's doing it maybe even recklessly. He's giving this, the father was giving mercy and grace to his sons wastefully. And the reason why I say that is because you've got to remember this audience. They're like, this is not how a father should respond. But yet he's doing it. And he's going over the top and he's doing it wastefully. Because they didn't deserve it. And you know what? None of us do. But God did it anyway. And he stands there waiting. By our definition, God is the prodigal in this story. God is the prodigal in this story, wastefully or recklessly extravagant with his mercy and his grace. He's pouring it out on us where it overflows. Giving or yielding profusely, very generous, lavish, lavishly abundant, giving in large amounts. That is God in this story with his mercy and his grace. One of the sons took steps in the story to come home. The other son, it was open-ended and were left hanging. One son comes to his senses. We don't know how, but his eyes were opened. Something, someone, somehow he was pointing to the truth. So my closing question here is this today. Where do you fall in the story? Where do you fall? in the story are you chapter one two or three it's kind of like a a play you you see the three different scenes Are, are you scene one scene one are you the son that is living in a distant land far from god are you scene two the repentant son that comes to his senses and returns to the father who accepts him joyfully or are you scene three the other son who is really trying really hard to earn the father's love and still left with an unanswered question of, did it work? Where do you find yourself in the story? Everybody in here has probably found themselves in one, two, or all three of the scenes at some point in time. But where do you find yourself today? I leave that question with you as we close in prayer to think about where you are and can you see the extravagant, reckless love of God as he's pursuing you and chasing you down, fighting until you're found. Do you see it? Can you experience it? And do you, even better, are you like son number one and don't even feel worthy for it? 
but God would chase you down. I mentioned this in our connection group on, on Thursday night, but I don't feel worth God doing that. But you know, God saw me as worth one Jesus to him. That's a big deal. And he sees you as worth one Jesus as well, that he's willing to sacrifice all so he can have a relationship with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for who you are. Thank you for what you continue to do and the way you continue to work in our lives. And Lord, I know this is a parable that we have seen a thousand times. It's a parable that, that we have seen played out on screen in one way or another. We have seen uh, or heard the term prodigal with our own kids or, or maybe a, a, a nephew or a niece or whatever it might be. We, we've seen it play itself out. But even in this, we've missed that reckless love of yours. God, help us to see it today. Help us to see that we are worth one Jesus to you and that God, in response to that love, we give you our lives sacrificially. We come humbly and repentant before you if we're trying to earn it or if we've wandered away. But God, because of your amazing grace, because of your amazing love, because of your great, amazing mercy, you're pouring it out on us and bringing us back into the family. We're thankful for that. We want to give you praise as we close up this service. Pray in your name.